Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Investment News Podcast. I'm Jeff Benjamin, co-hosting with Bruce Kelly. And we are talking today with one of our esteemed colleagues, Joanne Cleaver. She has a title that is so impressive. I'm going to let her explain it to you. But we also want to we want to get really into the weeds a little bit with uh, some of the things that Joanne has done here at Investment News and continues to do in terms of expanding and improving our coverage in a lot of really cool areas. So, Joanne, how are you doing? I am perfectly lovely in every way. Uh, that's you, you can't get any better than that. We might as well end it right here. I mean, come on. <laughs> that's OK. <laughs> I, I, I'm in New York right now. I can but, go shop. Let's try and knock you off that pedestal a little bit here. Why don't we start with, uh, what, tell us your title and, and, and what you've been doing. Then we're going to talk about this, uh, this past few days uh, there in New York while you're there. Yeah, I am the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Editor here at Investment News. And essentially, my job is to explain to the current leadership in the financial advisory and investment ecosystem mm-hmm. why the future doesn't look like them and why it's worthwhile to invest in people who have very different perspectives, backgrounds, and experiences. So you're kind of like the grim reaper for the the current leadership across wealth management, right? I prefer to think of it as I hold the greatest, lightest hope for y'all to cash out to people who want to follow in your footsteps, but with different shoes. Y'all, there's my my North Carolina buddy. Just so you people know that, Joanne is currently in New York, New York, the city. So nice. You got to say it twice, but she is based in Charlotte, North Carolina, where all she does is complain about the humidity. It's true. It sounds like she's Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're our only hope, (laughs) (laughs) Obi-Wan. Right, Joanne? I would say that the the rising generation of advisors and um, investment professionals, obviously for every generation, the next generation is the only hope, right? But it's especially acute for um, the current crop of leadership, because if you want to cash out and go to that great golf course in the sky, you're going to have to understand the motivations of the people who are coming behind you. And they are different, probably, from when you took over a practice or grew into leadership. But Joanne, the thing that the knit I have to pick with the industry, and Jeff does too, I think, even though I'm not speaking for Jeff, is that, you know, he and I have both covered this industry for a long time, and the needle hasn't budged that much on making it a more diverse and inclusive business for women and minorities to work in. The trade organizations actually used to give lip service to this 15, 20 years ago and put out surveys and say the number of, you know, we have a women's initiative, we have Mm -hmm. a we have an initiative to hire, you know, black and Latino advisors and actually give data about the number of registered representatives with FINRA who were actually women and minorities and track that data a little bit. And then that all stopped. A lot of things stopped during the credit crisis in 2008. And mm-hmm. that's all gone away. You know, um, it's very hard to get real information from companies and trade groups about who is working where and how and the like. So, I mean, good, good. It's great that we, that investment news has you, has somebody like you and putting a a person to put a focus and emphasis on this. And I think we saw that, you know, this week. And we want you to talk a little bit more about that, but you know, it's just a, I mean, man, this is a, to continue in our Greek 
uh, vocabulary. The industry is fe- is facing a Sisyphean feat here. <laughs> right? I would argue. Isn't he the I guy that was pushing that... the rock up the hill? Yeah, and, and... Sisyphus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it would roll back to the bottom. The old guys, would... mm-hmm. and then it would roll back, and he'd have to go yeah. down there and push. Yeah. It it's it's yeah. Sisyphean, if 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 anything, right? Well, it's only Sisyphean if you keep investing in processes and programs that don't work. Because then you create your own rock, right? Every time you you know grab onto that rock, not right. to torture the metaphor, you know, it's like just if the rock keeps materializing and it keeps rolling down, maybe you need to either get on another mountain or rethink the rock, like rethink the task. And that is exactly what I intend to do or am doing with this DEI position, which I'm actually very excited to have. It's a career capstone for me. I've been covering diversity, equity, and inclusion for almost all of my 40-year career as a business journalist, starting at Crane Chicago Business as a freelancer for 17 years, uh, contributing to the Chicago Tribune's business pages for over 20 years as a staff editor at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, and now here with freelancing for top-level outlets all the way along the line. And we introduced with this year's Women to Watch Awards, a brand new award that does exactly that, Bruce. It creates a standard. It draws a line in the sand and in an industry that's been happy to be shy and coy about the reality of the pipeline. We're saying, if you have 30% women in your C-suite, you get an Ascension Award. That's it, end of the story. I don't care how you get there. I don't care if you give birth to all these women and just hire them from kindergarten. I don't care how you do it. Well, we'd like to find out afterwards how you did it. But the 30% line is super important. That's a very important milestone because copious sociological research indicates that when any given minority hits about 30% of the group, that at that point, something changes in the group dynamic where the members of that minority group, say in this case, women, are suddenly viewed as speaking on the basis of their own credentials and their own merits instead of speaking for the group. So if you have a group, uh, say a board or a C-suite that's comprised of 10 people, one of them's a woman, when there's only one woman, she's often expected to provide, quote unquote, what do the women think? But if you get to 30% women, then all of a sudden, each of those women is viewed as bringing their own expertise to the table. Collectively, they might say, hey, look, you know, we know that as women, you know, please don't pinkwash all of your marketing material. They might say something like that. But as individuals, it changes the the whole group dynamic. So that's why we set that 30% as a threshold. We had 12 Ascension winners this year, and it's a completely transparent standard. And readers of investment news can go to those firms and companies' websites and look at the C-suite you know, lineups. Every firm has got an about section of its website. Leadership is one of the tabs. Look it up, get out a piece of paper and count. And if you make it, you get on the list because that's a hard milestone to achieve. And it's a milestone that changes the dynamic of leadership. And so we're doing for the industry what it doesn't seem to be able to do for itself. Why don't you talk, Jeff? We should ask Joanne to explain a little bit about what the women to watch media. Yeah, we, right? we need to, you got a little bit ahead of us of our questions there because that's <laughs> the way we operate here in the podcast, uh, Joanne. But um, we're going to let it stay as an uncut version because that's the way we like things, really lumpy, clunky segues. <laughs> so now that you've told us about the, the, the Ascension winners, let's go back and talk about 
what we're talking about. Let's talk about what happened over these past couple of days at uh, Investment News and all the work you have been putting putting together for months. Well, we just had our Women to Watch Awards on the 15th of November, and we celebrated 23 women and 12 companies that, oh, I'm sorry, 15 companies, because we, we have an additional corporate award, the Momentum Award, that are genuinely and measurably advancing the industry on behalf, by women and on behalf of women. So we recognized and rewarded um, women who are making changes as rising stars, as women who are entrepreneurial with our new Own It Award. Um, Amy Weber, who's the CEO of Cambridge Investment Research, is our Alexandra Armstrong Lifetime Achievement winner. And we, um, we recognized excellence in portfolio design. And then we also called out allyship because that's a really important dynamic for changing corporate culture where any individual at any given moment might have the chance to be an ally for somebody who is underrepresented, um, either a minority, maybe somebody who identifies as LGBTQ um, or a woman. And this can go in any direction. And I hope that in future years we'll have women sticking up for men, men sticking up for women, people in just, you know, going in all directions, right? People within companies, but also people being allies for um, reasonably um, affiliated or, you know, in some way logically linked uh, community groups or um, people in college or whatever it might be. Because when people stand with underrepresented um, individuals, that is where culture change happens. It's one relationship at a time. It's one incident at a time. And when you get the chance to stand up with somebody else, we want to celebrate that at Investment News. And so we created this allyship award. Um, and so the whole package was our Women to Watch Awards uh, ceremony that was on the November 15th. And our issue with all of the winners comes out November 21st. Excellent. That's gonna be a pretty comprehensive thing. Um, what were some of the things that maybe stood out to you, Joanne, in, in all of the work that you put into this looking, you know, you're, obviously there were a ton of nominees, right? Uh, 220. Wow. Tell us about some of the, the process to, to winnow that down to, what did you say, a dozen? 23 women and 15 companies. Okay, 15, yeah. Yeah. Well, Ascension, like as I jumped the gun and told you enthusiastically already, that was very clear cut. Obviously, no company is going to nominate themselves for the Ascension Award if they don't meet the threshold of 30% women in the C-suite. <laughs> uh -huh. and, and that's the point. That would be right? very bad in a financial services company to say, hey, we have 10% women. <laughs> We're rounding up. We're, do we hit the 30% mark? You know, yeah, and my answer would be, yeah. no, no, you don't. Sorry. Did we get any <laughs> applications like that, though? No, we didn't. But we we got a few emails asking about it. And, you know, I've been running this sort of project since 1997. And um, what I have found is that there's a catalytic effect, a very quiet, silent, insidious, and powerful catalytic effect to setting a standard like the Ascension Award. Because I guarantee you that when our issue comes out, that there are going to be CEOs across this industry that say, wait a minute, we're 27%. We are guaranteed to get an award from Investment News if we somehow reach this milestone. They explained why this is the milestone. Okay, you know, you can argue with it. Good luck arguing, arguing with me. Just ask my husband. <laughs> but, um, you know, we've, we've got logic behind the milestone. And you set that standard and companies say, okay, all right, we can meet that challenge. We can double down on XYZ program that seems to be gaining traction internally, 
we think we can do that. We might not do it next year, but we might do it in 2024. You set a standard like that and it changes the conversation because people have something that's identifiable that they can go for and it makes a difference. So nobody else is doing it. We're the ones who set the standard in the industry for coverage. We're the ones who did it. Oh, that's great. Okay, so that was easy. So then what does that get us down to? Uh, 208 nominees. <laughs> well, first of all, much caffeine, much caffeine. I honestly, um, our, our approach overall at Investment News is to take every nominee seriously because every single person who puts themselves out there, they don't do this willy-nilly. Like this is a demanding process and I make no apology for that because we really under, want to understand what you're doing and what the um, what, what problem you're solving, what the results are and what can we bring to the industry through the example that you're setting. We want robust, rich, case studies, essentially, that other people can learn from, because there's no point. This is not a Miss America contest, right? It's like we're not parading around in our bathing suits and our you know prom dresses. We're saying, this is how change happens. And we want to show that as clearly and as in such a compelling way as we can. So our first cut was looking for stories that uh, evidence of significant change. You know, we, we found a lot of nominees who were on their way. And I would say to the people who listen to this podcast who are disappointed that they didn't make it this year to say, you know, keep on with the change that you're enacting right now. Measure the results. We want to see measurable results. I'll tell you something, guys. I have no patience for people who want a gold star for solving problems they created, right? <laughs> so, well, I mean, really, you know, you yeah. peanut butter on the floor. You, you know, want to talk you, to my children, my 15-year-old yeah. children? I'd be happy Joanne, to. I've got or, three. About, about the, getting into college or what? Yeah. I absolutely <laughs> would be happy to. My three grown daughters are What's your fee? in the basement. <laughs> yeah, well, we can have that side conversation. I'll take your bonus. Okay. Um, but we want to see real innovation and measurable results. So early on in my career, when I was managing a project for a magazine that doesn't exist anymore called Working Woman Magazine, and launched their first um, top 25 companies for executive women list and designed the methodology for that. We had a company that doesn't exist anymore because I've been around that long, um, that tried to uh, muscle its way onto this top 25 list on the basis of making a major donation to a women's art museum. I, I love art. I mean, and I'm, I I'm all about it, but I was just like, no, that does not, it's not measurable, um, I mean, a measurable result for women in your industry or in your company. So our first cut was looking for substantial measurable change. And that honestly, you know, cut it down by about 60%. We wanted, definitely want to go back at some point and look at some of those nominees and see if there are conversations we can have with them to understand why they're tackling certain problems the way they are and how things are going. But for the time being, deadlines being what they are, we started working with the semifinalists and then we started looking for a process. Okay, so you found a problem, you're trying to solve it. it looks like you're getting some results. Tell us how. You know, if you're doing mentoring, which has been around for quite a while, tell us what's different about it. And we found a couple of companies that genuinely are taking a more structured, purposeful, strategic approach to mentoring, not just crossing their fingers and hoping that people are going to meet in the lunchroom and that some kind, somehow mentoring magic is going to happen, 
but companies that were really employing, to be honest, some of your wisdom of designing a portfolio, why can't you measure the results of um, diversity recruiting and advancement the same way that you measure the results of a diversified portfolio? Honestly, if you're so smart at managing money, how come you can't apply the same metrics to managing people? That's what I would say. And so what, what are you investing in programs that are known to work or are you simply throwing money at programs that are you know, being run by people who've been running the same programs forever? No, I wanna see real innovation. And then from there, we came up with our finalists. And are you actually doing the programs you say you're doing too? Are you retaining more women, especially in mid-career? Because time and time again, after across almost all industries, almost all professions, the break point is not getting women to work. 51% of women, oh wait, 49% of the workforce is women. Women work full-time consistently right up into the point um, where they have two kids. And it's really a caregiving break point for women dialing back, taking the foot off the, uh, the um, uh, pedal. Wait, now I'm getting into a car analogy. Help me out. What's the thing that makes you go faster? Accelerator. Thank you. <laughs> I will get there. I will get there. Um, you know, women take their foot off the accelerator when they have this choice of, look, you know, I've only got so much time in the day. My kids are not going to be young forever. There will always be more opportunities at work. And I have a saying, I'm going to tell it to you because I know you guys, neither of you uh, are completely bald. So you'll, hopefully you'll get this joke. So I have, a saying to my, I have a saying to my journalism friends. I say, you know, honestly, women in America look at two sets of bald crying people, babies and bosses. And they say, which one do I want to spend the next five years with? The babies are going to win every time. So how are companies addressing this really critical head-on collision of ambition and parenthood? And it, the caregiving conflict and friction continues, of course, lifelong, primarily for women, because culturally we expect women to always step up and sacrifice their own financial well-being for the sake of the other person. That's the, the rock-ribbed, you know, deeply embedded cultural expectation. And that carries all the way through for caring for elders and caring for aging spouses um, all the way through. So that first critical moment, that first collision of caregiving with career happens when that second baby becomes one baby, not such a big deal. You got two parents typically, um, you know, you can manage that. Uh, but two kids, things start to really, um, you know, that's exponential complication. And the childcare costs are pretty dramatically expanded as well. So we really want to see innovation in mitigating those conflicts. And there's a jillion ways you can do it. There's ways I don't know about. And that's why we have this uh, Women to Watch program and our DEI program and why we do coverage, um, we're going to be doing coverage in 2023 that specifically looks at these caregiving conflicts for the career path. It's, it's the big one. It really is. That's where the pay gap emerges. And that's where women have a really rough time getting back into their the flow of their career, recapturing the ambition that they had and continuing to build their own economic independence. Where do you go from here, Joanne, following this you know, this this big cover story coming out on Monday and then. The... Well, Joanne was also the MC of the event, too, Jeff. Right. Don't forget. I had a nice opportunity to attend and then do a little story about it the next day. But uh, Joanne, just talk to us about the event itself. It was in Tribeca in lower Manhattan at a at a semi swanky place. Really great food, uh, plentiful booze. And you were the MC for two hours. And so you were 
you know, meeting many of these people for the first time, I imagine, right? Because you've only been here since April or May. April 4th. Right. Since the, this is the first one you're doing, what was the whole event? Tell us what you were doing there and what was it like for you? Well, my primary takeaway from the event was that my wardrobe is significantly deficient in sequins because everyone is spangly as a lot of those. Yeah. yeah and I was like, there, I just people, wore yeah. this like, you know, kind of classic Navy dress with like the draping and the ruching that middle-aged women love. And everybody else was like all sparkly. And I was like, what the heck, you know, it's like, maybe I do need some sequins. So that is what on my to-do list for 2023 is. You hear that, Jeff? Sparkles. Sparkles. I'm actually uh, going to start looking that way myself. Uh, I think I need more sequins. That's <laughs> okay, well, that's our challenge. We're going to have the Adjustment News 2023 Bedazzling Challenge. Yeah, you guys are I'm, on. I'm going to bring a glue gun. Next I'm time going for it. I'm, yeah, I'm going all in because as anybody that knows me on fashion, I'm not afraid of anything. <laughs> no, I would say so. And now we have these uh, Mary Beth Franklin t-shirts and they have a crown on them. So we should do a team uh, challenge of bedazzling the crown. There you go. Yeah, right. we're done here. All right. So the event was just honestly, a, a, it was glorious. It was about six and a half hours. We started out with a couple of thought leadership sessions um, that were really energetic and inspiring. Mary Beth Franklin, our longtime social security columnist, talked about her career path. I think it's really helpful for people to understand all the different angles um, and, and uh, paths and on-ramps um, that women can take in mid-career and mid-life to enter this profession, which conveniently is the topic of the future story that's coming out on Monday that I wrote. At any rate, so mm -hmm. we got all inspired uh, or we got all informed by the thought leadership sessions. And then, as you said, Bruce, people drank a bunch and then they were then they were all motivated to um, celebrate the winners, um, these 23 uh, women and uh, 15 companies that uh, won these awards after our rigorous process of looking for results in all those nominations. But there was all kinds of firms there, too. I think there was like, Jeff, there was everybody from like, you know, Morgan Stanley and Merrill Lynch. Mm -hmm. to Hightower, right? I mean, yep. to like a big RIA. Small firms. We had aggregator. some, yeah, we had some, uh, a number of winners that were um, women-owned firms or women in, um, we had actually, I thought this was really cool. So a diverse group of people from firms as well, diverse firms, I think. Yeah, uh, yeah, we had it's a really nice spectrum of diversity um, just among all the women who won. We had two women who were rising stars and they're, their stories were almost uncannily similar. They both married into financial advisory firms that were started by their mothers or mothers-in-laws. I mean, well, no, in uh, most cases, their mothers-in-law. And I thought that was so interesting that the, the mothers who started the firms would actually have sons who wanted, I mean, maybe, I don't know, Will Forty in there, you know, marry, marry women who were in their mom's own or amenable to their mom's own profession. But, you know, how often do you hear of succession being almost completely in male terms and to have two firms that were handed down, you know, in the matriarchal line, I thought was really cool. Yeah. Now with this is all behind you, and and I know we still have the, the the excellent cover story coming up and the coverage coming up in the our next issue, which actually comes out the same day as this podcast. What what are uh, what do you see for the year ahead for kind of some of the areas you want to explore in maybe twenty twenty three along these lines and along the your responsibilities and and aegis here at Investment News. Like aegis, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to go look that up. <laughs> it's been a long time since I took the SAT. 
So caregiving and caregiving conflicts, I think is super important. Um, it's, it's painful for people to talk about because it's so personal, so intimate. I've been reporting on this stuff long enough to have seen several generations of male CEOs get accolades for making changes at their companies that, you know, women are just like, really, you know, you get, it's like, oh, look, you know, you, uh, you put your dirty underwear in the hamper instead of on the floor next to the hamper. Oh, well done, Johnny. And I just really want to see innovation in that space, but also really explore how this, how this industry can be a powerful voice and advocate for families that are dealing with some tough issues from all perspectives, mm -hmm. right? Because clients deal with that. I mean, a story just flew through my inbox this morning along the lines of how that widows, or I'm sorry, older couples, if one of them goes into a nursing home, the other one is in danger of being impoverished. And we see stories like that all the time, you know, the, the tough choices that people have. So this conflict of caregiving and financial security is just profound. And there are some just some really, really good um, thought leaders out there, AARP and other, um, you know, the Boston College Center on Retirement um, and all. It just, you know, Catherine Collinson of Transamerica. has got all kinds of great resources. And mm -hmm. I feel like I just really want to push in hard into that dynamic because it is so important in every direction. Um, we did a little bit of coverage on supplier diversity and uh, in the summer and how that intersects with firm growth and opportunity because specialized um, asset management firms get a very, very, that are run by women or minorities get only a tiny slice of contracted work from bigger institutions. And the Biden administration signaled a few days ago that it's going to be pushing through the supplier diversity accountability channel of federal contracting for climate reporting. And my bet, and you heard it here first, is that we're soon going to see a push for EEO1 data uh, to be reported consistently by publicly held companies. They already collect this data through the economic, what's the EEO, economic opportunity, economic- Equal employment opportunity. Yeah, 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 yeah. there you go. Um, so this data is already collected. And if, if I'm not mistaken, it's rolled up into some of the reports that we get from federal agencies on, you know, who's working where and stuff like that. You know, the presence of um, women, um, people of color, you know, men obviously as well in various types of um, jobs and broad strokes. So if companies and HR departments are already collecting and reporting that data and it's already being aggregated back to the American public, then why don't we simply get it broken out for companies that are taking American tax dollars? Uh, that is, but that would be my question. And I would guess that that might be on the, the that's where this administration is headed. I'm here for it. I am totally here for it. So I think that there will be more movement with supplier diversity. Um, we're really, really interested in continuing to look at the intersection of career opportunity with various segments and communities within uh, the whole scope of coverage of uh, diverse communities. So mm -hmm. we've, we've done, made some progress with that. Um, we need to do a lot more looking at Black women, for example, um, Hispanic community did a story on um, how the Asian women perceive themselves to be underestimated and overlooked in financial services and in, in our industry. And there's more to be told there. Native Americans um, are very interested in this industry because now there's a lot of second generation expertise in terms of the, the generation that 
was pivotal or foundational for the whole casino entrepreneurial complex. Mm-hmm. Now their children are comfortable with big hospitality operations and regulated operations. And you're starting to see a lot of business expertise um, and, and you know interest in asset management coming out of this, this second generation. So what does that mean for the wealth management and asset management industry? The problem, right? perennially has been that, you know, these are communities that are not nearly as affluent, right? As, as the dominant white community. So Wall Street has no profit incentive to chase these people and do their business, particularly on the re in retail, right? Uh, Financial advice as opposed to institutional financial advice, um, because retail is priced such that, you know, the, firms, the big firms want the richest clients. That's why supplier diversity is so important because for those retail advisors, the business owners in your community, those are the ones who are building family wealth. And disproportionately, American Blacks, Hispanics, Asians are much more entrepreneurial than um, just the, the white population in general because those overlooked communities tend to perceive that they're not going to get opportunities past mid-career at big corporations. So I'm not saying that's true or not. I'm just saying that's the perception and it's very well documented. And so you get a lot of entrepreneurial energy from minority communities. Well, now you've got second, third, fourth generation. You're starting to get a professional perspective, college educated perspective on the family business, but it's still a lot of entrepreneurial energy I think that you're going to see a lot of opportunity there if we perceive these communities not as historically being lower income or whatever, you know, first generation college. There is obviously a lot of that, but they also have enormous entrepreneurial energy. And I think that um, for advisors who, Jeff, you know, to your specialty, the niche advisor, um, for advisors who really want to get in on the ground floor, with communities that are fast growing and building family wealth. Mm-hmm. This is one strong way to get there. So one example is the Arab American community in Dearborn, Michigan. They've been a fantastic source of growth for um, several big firms in the Detroit area for advisory. Yeah, that's uh, at least a few years ago. I remember the uh, Detroit, Michigan was had the largest concentration of Arab Americans in the country. Yep. Yeah, there definitely is a niche story there. And I really, I never thought about the Native American community, the way that casinos have just enriched that community uh, in, in so many ways. And I, 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 I don't know, I don't know. I got to imagine there's financial advisors that are, that are already working in those spaces. But well, we're going to find out. Yeah, we will. Bruce, anything else for uh, Joanne Cleaver before we let her get back to her other job of editing stories? Not yeah. right now. I just, I just love her penchant for Greek vocabulary, though. Yeah, she, she does love it. She, that's her favorite uh, second or third language. I can't remember how many languages she speaks. I think you got to speak at least three languages to get hired by investment news. Isn't that right? Really? Yeah. I got enough problems with English. <laughs> English. Uh, that's one of them. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, thank you, Joanne. Really. Thank good you, stuff. Joanne. Thank you for being here. Re- just. Continue to enjoy your work and thank you for all you do for us here. Well, thank you for a final turn for this week of, I guess, being in the spotlight or something. It's nice to have a little encore. Wonderful. Was that a Greek word or is that French? 
Encore, I think is a, uh, I think that's a made up word, but we'll allow it. Oh, well, you're nothing but, you're all graciousness. We're, we're good that way. Uh, <laughs> all righty. Thanks, Jeff. Launching every Monday. That was another episode of the Investment News Podcast. We want to thank our special guest this week, Investment News' very own Joanne Cleaver. She is our editor of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion here at Investment News. We also want to thank our producer, Angelica Hester. You can find the podcast, of course, at investmentnews.com, as well as Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. Leave us a review on Apple. Please follow us on Spotify. If you want to get in contact with Jeff while Twitter still exists, reach out to him on the bird at Benji Writer is his handle there. My handle is at BP News Guy. Stay tuned because we'll be talking to you next week. 